Hello, welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Space to Learn with me, Lucy Woodward, and today I have a guest on the podcast, Matthew Bird, who is a PhD student at the University of Nottingham within the chemistry department, and he's also been the science editor for Impact Magazine, which is the University of Nottingham's student magazine. So that's how I know Matt, and I thought I'd ask him on the podcast to talk about sustainability because I know he's also passionate about climate change and I think it's always helpful having more voices in this conversation. So yeah, we had a lovely chat about the role of science communication within climate change. We spoke about disinformation and trust in publications. We spoke about how you can kind of use your skills and abilities to make a difference. And we also spoke about his PhD which is in uh, how to make hydrogen as a green fuel so loads of really cool stuff in there I think it was yeah it was just lovely to kind of have a chat with someone else who cares about climate change because often I think it can be kind of an isolating uh, world especially when I'm just sat in my bedroom recording this podcast so yeah it was good to have another voice another opinion and he shared some really cool insights so I hope you enjoyed the episode let me know what you think over on Instagram which is at space to learn podcast and yeah stay tuned for the next two parts in this series as well got two more episodes coming out this week and yeah hope you enjoy I'll let you get straight into the conversation Okay, so hello everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into the podcast. Today I'm joined by Matt Bird, who is a PhD student at the University of Nottingham. I'll let Matt introduce himself, but we're going to chat a bit about climate change in the media, how to engage the reader with the issue and some of the issues surrounding science communication and how to make it effective. Also some advice for anyone considering a PhD. So yeah, if you'd like to introduce yourself, Matt. Hi, I'm I'm Matt Bird. Uh, I'm a final year PhD chemistry student and I was the science editor for Impact last year. So in the 2020-21 academic year. And before that, I was president of the Creative Writing Society for two years. And I also did my undergrad master's uh, degree at Nottingham in chemistry. Um, so yeah, I've, this is my eighth year at the uni now. So I've been here a while. <laughs> been there a while then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very nice. So I thought we could start by discussing science communication, particularly on the subject of climate change, because it's something I'm pretty passionate about and it's what this series that I'm making at the moment is all about, about imperfect sustainability and kind of doing what you can to help. So I wanted to talk about your role as the science editor for Impact, because that's how I know you. That's where I was first introduced to you and stuff. So what kind of drew you towards the role and what do you enjoy most about it? What's been rewarding about being science editor? Um, so I've always enjoyed writing and I've always enjoyed like reading around science um, and I've written a few articles for Impact in my undergrad and then did a few more later on in my PhD. The previous year's committee, someone on the committee from, from the year before, um, messaged me uh, asking if I'd like to run for science editor primarily because no one else is running for it. <laughs> I, I've been considering science journalism as a potential career, so I thought I would make time uh, because it would look 
good on the CV. And also I thought it would uh, be a really enjoyable thing to do. Um, and have you enjoyed it? Has it been good? I have enjoyed it. Um, I think I've uploaded and edited 70 articles in, in my time mm-hmm. as science editor. So I enjoyed growing the section, not that the previous editor joe he did a fantastic job i'm not saying he didn't do a good job um but i had i expanded mm-hmm. the section and gave it more prominence yeah within impact yeah that's been good and one of the things that you signed the magazine up for was the cl- uh, covering climate now initiative um which i thought was really cool because i guess it just makes the magazine a bit more uh, respected within other publications and things like that so how did you come about that and why was that important to you to have the more climate change focus within the science section? So climate coverage was one of the things that I kind of focused on in my manifesto um, when, when I was running for the role because it is the biggest story of our generation um, and often it is um, put into the science section of magazines. So I was also quite quite keen on the idea that climate coverage wasn't going to be limited to the science section of impact, which is why I signed impact up to covering climate. Now it wasn't a thing where like the science section of impact mm-hmm. is signed up. It was just led from the science section. So Covering Climate Now is a global journalism initiative, which is all about pushing for an increase in the quantity and the quality of climate coverage across newsrooms um, and media outlets. So we're, I believe, the only UK student publication in the initiative, but there are some big names like The Guardian, Reuters, and possibly the BBC, um, they, they're all part of this initiative because the public access their information from these outlets. So it's important that they accurately portray the climate story in a way that engages readers. Yeah, I think that's really important what you said about it being such an all-encompassing issue because it's not limited to the science section, like you said, it's going to affect every single one of us. So it's important that that initiative was for the whole magazine, which, yeah, that's definitely an important point, I think. And it's good that the magazine can then get some more kind of respect and recognition, I think, within, within like you mentioned, it's the same initiative that The Guardian has and things like that. So, yeah, I think that's been a really positive addition. And I'm sure lots of people would agree with that. Um, you wrote an article about, Um, covering climate now when you signed up to it which I had a little read through the other day and I'm going to do that slightly awkward thing where I read back your article to you okay (laughs) there's a point when you said um, we simply don't have the time or capacity to critically engage with everything we read and we depend on the journalists to have done their due diligence in their reporting and to filter out disinformation I think disinformation is one of the biggest challenges at least in my mind for um, science communication and just media in general so I wondered if you wanted to touch on how important you think trust is in publications and how 
to reduce the disinformation that we kind of face at the moment. Yeah. So one thing I think is, is important to point out is that there's a, a subtle difference between misinformation and disinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and one is intentionally misleading, whereas the other is accidentally misleading. Um, so if you've got a, a publication which is funded by big oil, I don't know, like BP or Shell are sponsoring it, then they perhaps have an incentive to basically lie. Um, whereas on the other hand, you might have a journalist who doesn't intentionally uh, misinform the public, but because they they themselves aren't fully knowledgeable on the situation, they can pass on rumours and falsehoods that then become part of the public's so-called knowledge, mm-hmm. even though it's wrong. Um, and, and both of those uh, lead to distrust of journalists. Like there was, um, there was a survey done not so long ago about public's trust in, in journalists. And it's, it's at a, almost an all time low at the moment. And I don't think that's just because of climate coverage, but journalism can have a reputation for being a kind of a seedy profession Mm -hmm. uh, in which there are bad actors at play incentivized by money and bribery. Yeah. Um, And I think it's, we need to overcome that distrust as journalists. And one way to do that is just through solid reporting mm-hmm. um, and transparency. Yeah. And, and I, I guess think that's it, where the role yeah. of editor comes in as well, because you do all the fact checking, you make sure everyone is kind of uh, not using articles from like irreputable sources, making sure everything is kind of fact checked before it goes up, which is very important. Um, yeah. I mean, the fact checking at impact is is obviously just done by the editor yeah whereas that in larger organizations there are entire fact checking teams mm-hmm. so i'm not going to pretend that our fact checking is as rigorous but then again <laughs> we have fewer articles so we can spend longer per article um but yeah when i was when i get an article in like my editing process is First, to make sure it's correct. And most authors are very good and they, they put all of their their links and sources in the article. So it's quite easy. You can just follow the, the thing that they're saying is their reference and and search that, make sure it the thing that they're saying that this other source says is actually what it says and is the source reputable. Um, and for science, I have... I have skills in that area because of my PhD. I, I'm often reading academic literature, so I've developed skills in appraising sources and that sort of thing. Um, and generally, if you're citing another news organisation, The Guardian, the BBC, generally trustworthy, they've never knowingly failed a fact check. Mm-hmm. The Sun, the Daily Mail, less trustworthy. Yeah. Um, because they regularly fail fact checks. And then it's also a case of when you go to an article, it's, well, what's that article's source as well? Um, so fact checking is important. 
and as long as organizations are doing that then then hopefully misinformation won't spread yeah yeah you'd like to think so anyway <laughs> um i think another important thing to consider is actually making the the articles and whatever it might be a podcast etc engaging and i wonder if you like what your decision making process is maybe when you're writing your own articles for how to choose the most relevant parts of a story for example to do with climate change and how to make sure that the information which has been fact-checked and whatever has is now engaging for the reader and is actually interesting and making them want to connect with the topic that you're talking about for most people data is boring mm-hmm. and they ask if i write that it's hard to care about a data point um and it's important when when coming up with stories relating to the climate crisis is that you remember that it's a thing that's happening to people um i heard a, a quote the other day uh and they said there's no such thing as a natural disaster an earthquake is only a disaster when it happens in a built-up area earthquakes mm. happen all the time if 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 the only thing that's affected is a field that's not a disaster no no damage has been done like natural so-called natural disasters are very much a a human invention it's only when our infrastructure is built on a fault line that earthquakes become dangerous right Mm-hmm. In the same way with climate change, climate change is affecting people, it's affecting communities. And I think focusing on the human aspect of that story, rather than saying the number of deaths associated with climate change went up by 10% since X. Yeah. It, that's, that's not particularly interesting. It's like, oh, that's quite a high number, maybe. People generally... Even, even scientists, when when like engaging in data that's not their specialism, it's like we don't naturally have a good handle of big numbers and percentages, um, but we do have a good handle on people yeah. and emotions. So if you can tell the story of one person or the story of a community, or at least reference uh, the human aspect of your story, then I think you make it far more engaging and more like to stick in the minds of, of your readers than just having an article that's like top 10 facts about climate change that you need to know and just have them all being numbers and percentages and like, what is one and a half degrees really? Like, yeah, exactly. If you, if you go in the shower and, and your water temperature changes by one and a half degrees, you've probably not going to notice mm-hmm. um but if if the planet you live on if the average temperature goes up by one and a half degrees then you increase the risk of floods you increase the risk of drought and it's like well floods and drought they they seem counter to you so mm-hmm. you're definitely yeah. going to notice that <laughs> just talking just talking about a single number or or putting it in terms of stats is not an engaging way to mm-hmm. tell the story. Yeah, it's. I think you're you're spot on with that. It's about making it relevant for people and for them to be able to see how it might affect them, rather than just like data points. Because unless you are, like you say, a scientist, 
engaged in that particular topic you're not going to be interested in that and it's very easy to forget so another aspect of good climate journalism is not to be all doom and gloom um there's a rising movement uh often referred to as solutions journalism where rather than writing about there's a problem this is the problem this is what the problem is going to cause this is the devastation that we're going to see wreaked across our entire world. It's like, well, that's just depressing. Yeah. Right. Definitely. People, people are switching off from that. That's been drilled into us so much. And, and either that story is going to get read by someone who already knows that we're in a terrible place regarding the climate, or it's going to be read by someone who doesn't believe it. Yeah. And telling them it's going to be even worse is not going to change their mind, but you can, write about the solutions to climate change that are being implemented now you don't have to always put a positive spin on the story but if you if you can just write an article about a community initiative which is benefiting the climate then then that's a good thing to write about and almost every solution to climate change benefits society in other ways yeah 100%. almost all of the solutions uh, end up with a more just society, which is less centralised and less dominated by capital. If you're interested in this sort of thing, go and look up like microgrids in Bangladesh, where where they've got they've installed solar panels and and the energy is controlled by the the small local communities and they sell and buy energy from their neighbours that can then be extended to neighbouring communities and it's very telling that there's a big opposition from the major energy companies Mm -hmm. in these areas because suddenly they're not in control of the energy they can't suddenly turn off your lights if you're not paying because you're the one making the electricity you're the one selling the electricity and you're buying it from your next door neighbour so that's quite a positive story though the top tips I've learned from reading other climate journalists and reading about climate journalism is make it a human story you don't have to be doom and gloom you can put solutions and positivity into your story definitely i think it's so much more useful especially when you're reading um articles if it's if it's so negative you just kind of switch off so yeah i definitely agree that we need to be a bit more solutions focused and yeah, have a bit more of a positive attitude about it because like you said, it's going to have other positive um, influences and other aspects of life as well. So yeah, definitely agree. As a scientist yourself, um, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about your PhD because it's pretty relevant to climate change. And yeah, if you want to go into what your PhD entails, because I'm sure you can explain it a lot better than I can. (laughs) Okay, so, so I'm in the Nottingham Applied Materials and Interfaces group. The broad topic of my thesis is earth abundant materials for the hydrogen economy, which probably doesn't mean anything to anyone uh, who isn't in my area. So I'm, I'm specifically looking at uh, making and using hydrogen as a green fuel, mostly on the making it side, a little bit on the using it side. Um, and the method of making it that I'm focused on is called 
electrolysis. So using electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen, and then using the, the hydrogen. And then you have the reverse of that in a fuel cell where you can feed in hydrogen and oxygen and they recombine to make water and in doing so uh, causes electricity to flow. So the issue with our current ways of making hydrogen is that it, it uses fossil fuels. We use a process called steam methane reforming, which cracks methane. Methane is a greenhouse gas. It's worse than CO2. So in a way, we're turning it from a bad greenhouse gas into a less bad greenhouse gas, but we're still releasing carbon dioxide in this process yeah. um, to make the hydrogen. But if you can use electricity to split your water, then that electricity can come from renewables. Um, and if you have something that you can do with renewables all the time, then, then you can start to uh, level the load on of, of the national grid and, and of your renewable energy sources. So the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine, but they also don't always do those things when we need them, right? So you can use excess renewable energy to make hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And then you can use the hydrogen um, at a later point to either make electricity in a fuel cell or you can burn it. Like when you burn hydrogen, you make water, you don't make CO2. And it's distinct to using a battery. Electrolysis is somewhat more scalable than battery technologies. Um, if you want to increase the capacity of your battery, you've got to like just have more batteries, right? But if you need to increase the capacity of your hydrogen uh, generation, you just need to store more hydrogen. So if you're pumping your hydrogen directly into pipelines, then the storage issue might not be a problem. You can also store hydrogen in vast caverns underground. Uh, is what some people are looking at. Yeah, so that's my that's my PhD, specifically working out ways to do that more efficiently and more cost effectively and less damaging to the environment to kind of extract. Yeah. What's the what's the kind of time scale on that? How long do you reckon it'll be before this is cost effective and able to be implemented on a wider scale? So there's a few aspects to that. Hydrogen usage is already being rolled out. There's hydrogen buses um, in London. There's the Orkney Islands, um, which which is kind of using hydrogen kind of power their community um there's projects in leeds about kind of turning uh the natural gas grid into a hydrogen grid for, for heating homes um so that's already being rolled out the usage of hydrogen can be done now um we just need to scale the technology mm -hmm. making hydrogen is still expensive it's either expensive or you generate CO2 at the moment. I, I can see hydrogen being generated at scale 15, 20 years. Yeah. And do you um, think that would be yeah. sped up by things like government subsidies or uh, different like priorities with funding, that kind of thing? Or is it kind of just a matter of perfecting the technology? I'd say it's never just a matter of perfecting the technology because to perfect the technology you need government funding so yeah. there's always a 
there's always a combination of factors. Government subsidies, maybe. Like, the ideal situation for any renewable source is that it becomes cost-effective without government subsidies. The role of government subsidies is to help get the technology to maturity, get it, get it implemented before it's cost-effective. Um, and so we're starting to see that with things like wind and solar. They're becoming cheaper and cheaper, and some of the subsidies are, are disappearing for them. And they're still becoming, and they're still cost effective versus coal, and, and sometimes versus gas. Um, so yeah, I think it, there's a mixture of government funding that's required. Um, more and more private companies are are kind of coming up up now, developing their own technologies. Um, and we saw we saw it with Tesla and batteries. When when you start getting private companies involved, you can see an explosion of innovation yeah that can help drive the cost down so hopefully there'll be an equivalent to tesla that does the same for hydrogen yeah that would be cool but it I won't guess. be tesla because elon musk doesn't like hydrogen but, <laughs> yeah. small problem there <laughs> um i wanted to briefly talk as well just to finish up about how people listening might be able to find something that they can contribute to reversing climate change i think that everyone kind of has different skills and abilities for example you've found writing to do alongside your phd and editing things like that has it been um do you have any advice for people to for finding something that they can do or any advice if people are interested in writing that kind of thing i'll answer those separately in, in terms of what can you do individually um, to help contribute to stopping and reversing climate change. There's always a debate on how much an individual can do. You can sort your recycling, but if the recycling facility that it goes to exports it to a different country that then just puts it onto landfill, I mean, your sorting of the recycling hasn't done anything apart from inconvenience you. There are things you can do. I think the biggest individual thing you can do to combat climate change is reduce your, reduce your meat consumption mm-hmm. um, the more people reduce their meat consumption the more people buying vegetarian or vegan foods that pushes a message to industry um, that this is something that, that people want and that will make industry provide that more um, and so I think there's a, a virtuous cycle there that makes reducing your meat consumption really good. I don't think it's necessary to eliminate your meat consumption because, because in part, like reducing your meat consumption is going to massively reduce your personal carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. But until the government and industry gets behind pushing f- for support for uh, vegetarian and vegan foods and like supporting farms in the transition away from meat production and, and all that stuff I don't think we're ever going to get meat out so I don't think it's necessary for everyone yeah, I agree. to eliminate meat because you're never going to get everyone to do it so yeah. eliminate it as much as you can um, and try and buy like if you if you only want to eliminate one meat eliminate beef yeah. right because that's the worst one yeah. um so do do what you can in that that sense vote that's probably one of the most important things you can do vote and don't just 
do tactical voting. Like if you vote for the Green Party, the Green Party, like the Green Party is not going to get into power, right? Mm-hmm. Certainly not in the next election. But again, you can send signals, right? The more people vote for the Green Party, the more the major parties will see that there's an increasing contingent of voters that are interested in sustainability issues. Yeah. And so they'll put those as a higher priority on their manifesto to try and draw you from the Green Party to their party. And so so you can send signals that way. Uh, the other part of your, your question was was writing, how to yeah, get involved with that. Any advice for anyone who maybe thinks they could do writing but maybe doesn't know where to start or is interested in um, science communication and yeah talking about climate change through things like podcasting I know you started yeah. a podcast as well with impact anything in that kind of area uh, if you're if you're at university write for your university publication it's probably the easiest outlet to get your writing into and there's also the community there that's good uh, if you're interested in improving your climate writing then go to the covering climate now website um sign up to their their climate beat newsletter um and that's filled with like the top stories like really high quality stories relating to climate um there's also a lot of analysis on the journalism perspective like how to do a good climate story they also have uh, webinars um, that are really interesting with like professional journalists talking and answering questions about how to tackle this stuff in a, in a newsroom setting. There are science writing internships you can apply for, so just keep a lookout for those. If you're not at university, you can always start a blog. You can tweet. Like, there's loads of ways to get your writing out there um, if if that's what you want to do. Yeah. True. Yeah, I think it's just getting yourself out there, isn't it? And finding ways to make your voice heard is really important, whether it's through your money, through your vote, etc. So mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. I agree with all of the things that you, you said. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really good to have a discussion about climate change. I think sometimes it can feel quite uh, like isolating almost. No one really seems to have conversations about it. So yeah, it's been good to yeah. talk to you about it. So thanks for coming on. Yep, Any thank you last for having me words? On. You're welcome. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you very much. That was a conversation with Matt Bird on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. And as always, click the little follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I'll be back tomorrow with another episode. See you soon. Bye. Bye.